Hello everybody, Jamie and George here. Say hello George. Hello. So welcome to another episode of Who's Afraid of the Big Idea, the show where George and I take you on a journey with fascinating companies, innovative leaders and forward thinkers. With our curious caps on, we aim to break down the tools, tactics and processes that you can use each and every day to tackle the big ideas that you face. I guess it would be useful for the listeners who, who, who don't know who you are to, to get a bit of background on yourself, um, the organisations that you currently work with and what's kind of led up to that. So um, I'm currently uh, doing three different roles. Um, I've been the Head of Financial Crime at Cave for just uh, just short of five years, uh, which has been a great time. Um, I, I'm moving slowly into consultancy work, so I work part-time as a consultant, um, specialising in counter-fraud, analytics, a little bit of GDPR, and I also chair uh, the Insurance Fraud Investigators Group, um, known by most people as, I, as IFIG, uh, which is um, an organisation that represents uh, insurance fraud investigators uh, around the UK, uh, and it's just a forum for sharing knowledge and that kind of thing. Prior to that, um, I started life in the police. I spent 22 years in the police, um, specialising as um, a, as an expert, I suppose, in forensic reconstruction. So my job was going to the scenes of serious multi-fatalities and that kind of thing and do the technical reconstruction. I would tell you how fast the car was going, which direction it was travelling in and what the driver might have been doing at the time of the accident. Um, so I did that for many years, um, and then I retired from the police, and the next thing I did was start all over again in insurance, um, which was great. Uh, I, I took some of the skill investigation skills I had uh, and worked for just short of five years as a special investigator. Um, and, and I investigated all types of claims from uh, property, motor, um, commercial claims, some liability claims, I looked at some internal frauds, some supplier frauds, so pretty much a full spectrum um, of, of, of investigations. And then from that, uh, I, I joined Zurich Insurance, where I worked for seven years in another great role. Um, and there I was a national fraud controller. And it was a grand title, but the, the job itself uh, was it didn't really give you an indication of the job, because what I looked after there was counter fraud strategies um, for the public sector. Zurich uh, insured a large proportion of the public sector, local authorities, housing associations and that kind of thing. And my job was to interface with them, help them develop strategies that were consistent with ours at Zurich, that were effective solutions for dealing with fraud. Because the public sector is a very uh, interesting area to work. You know, it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's very politicised in a sense, because you've got lots of factors there that are being affected by fraud. It's not just whether or not it's affecting you and I as a policyholder. It actually affects the services that local authorities can deliver and that kind of thing. So it was helping them counter fraud. From there, uh, I went to Equity Red Star for 12, 15 months as head of fraud. And then the opportunity at Cavea came along. It's interesting to see that you were fighting crime in your past life in the police and in your new life in insurance. Was that a fairly natural progression for you? Was that a natural transition? Yeah, uh, I mean, the skills of uh, speaking to people uh, and, and establishing evidence, doing an interview, getting at the truth, is, is something you develop over a lifetime. 
Um, so coming into insurance and use those skills was a was a, was a huge opportunity, and and the the, the experience that I had was a, an incredible asset. I, I think what was really quite obvious when I came into insurance is is that the world of insurance was still evolving. The way we dealt with fraud in insurance was still evolving, uh, and it wasn't quite in that place uh, of seeing the fraudster as a criminal. Okay. So watching that evolve and being a part of that. Uh, you know, taking the skills from the police in terms of gathering evidence and treating it as evidence because we're going to go to court, mm. we're going to prosecute this person. Um, that, 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 those kind of, um, that experience and those skills were quite useful and it, it did mean that I could kind of move into insurance investigation quite easily. That makes sense. To help paint a picture for the listeners, whether they are from an insurance business, another business, a retail or a bank for instance, or as a customer, where do the risks lie with fraud or cybercrime? And how do you, as a business or you know, as, as, as an everyday customer, try and protect yourself from that threat? There are, there are so many different areas where you, uh, as an individual, as well as a business, can be exposed to risk of either fraud or cybercrime. And I see those as being quite, uh, as being distinctly different. Mm. Um, there, there's crossover between them, but... You know, cybercrime, um, we, we kind of get into that area where maybe you're using technology to facilitate um, a, a fraud, mm-hmm. and you probably consider that cybercrime. But I also consider the other kind of things, the kind of attacks that organisations are vulnerable to um, through uh, from criminals that are just trying to be disruptive. Yeah. Maybe you're trying to steal money in a different way. And th- there are some common sense things in there. You know, organisations and individuals can protect themselves against this kind of thing. Up-to-date software on the computer, for example, antivirus software, simple things like that, password uh, changes, don't share passwords. So the simple things you can do, you know, if you see an email you don't like, you don't recognise it, don't follow the links, don't open attachments. So there are fairly simple things. And we, we uh, for many years, um, I chaired uh, another organisation, which was the Northwest Road Forum, and it's one of eight regional forums where we volunteer our time and we spent time working with organisations, helping them to protect themselves against different uh, vulnerabilities. Um, and, and that included cybercrime, which at that time hadn't evolved in the way it has now, mm. but it was the same kind of principles. You know, use common sense in terms of your access to the computer to protect yourself so that other people can't access it easily and use your you as a channel into the organisation. And what we see now as employees of organisations is we're starting to receive emails now from people we don't know. And you kind of feel a bit comfortable within the organisation. Oh, it must be something that I need to read or do something with. When reality is, these are criminals that have found a way to attack the organisation. And and, and good organisations will have measures in place which will intercept that kind of thing, anything with a strange link or a strange attachment. Mm. But the reality is we all still need to be aware of the fact that when we see an email, it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're at home or you're at work, treat that email carefully uh, and and consider carefully whether or not you follow the links. Fraud is very much the same. So when we look at counter-fraud and protecting ourselves, one of the biggest things that we expose ourselves to is identity theft. Um, and, and, and I remember doing a presentation to, uh, to a, a group of people on this subject, and it was really exposing how easy it is for the criminal to build uh, an image of you, research your social background, if you will, and build that image about your name, your address, your date of birth, who you work with, who you live with, 
all these things that help to paint that picture that will help them uh, step into your shoes and steal from your bank or steal from your uh, your life in a sense. They'll try to impersonate you and they'll take out insurance, they'll take out credit and do different things. So again, it's how you protect yourself uh, against that kind of thing. You can, you'll never be 100% protected, but it's about minimising the risk rather than trying to eliminate it. And do you think most people or most businesses are fully aware of that risk? Or are we waiting on something bad to happen from a cybercrime perspective until people kind of sit up and, and really take notice of the level of threat that's potentially out there? It's a little bit like life. Um, some people are a little bit cavalier about life and say, Do you know what, I'll wait to see what happens. Somebody sooner or later will tell me what I'm supposed to do. Mm. Um, and, and they expose themselves to that risk. But the reality of it is that we've had lots and lots of information fed to us through the media uh, as a consequence of incidents and that sort of thing. Um, and, and many organisations now have taken positive steps to protect themselves you know, we're using up-to-date software, which is one of the critical things. That some of these vulnerabilities come about through legacy software. Mm. And also, what I mean by that is uh, a company might uh, might ha- uh, historically uh, have merged or acquired other businesses, and as part of that, they've inherited a system. And, and we start to uh, have this network of systems. Some of them are older than others and use software which is bespoke and developed on a certain platform. Mm. And that means that the difficulty is about upgrading the platform because the software won't work on a new platform, mm. so it takes time. But, but these are the challenges that we face, and some organisations are in that position and trying their best to bring the software up to date and protect themselves. But the reality is um, that the, 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 I think the largest proportion of businesses um, are already well protected. They've taken uh, good measures to make sure the organisation is protected. But more to the point that the people who work within the organisations mm. are aware of what these risks and vulnerabilities look like. Because we all play a part. It's not, if we work for an organisation, it isn't for us to sort of say to the organisation, well, you tell us what we need to do. Uh, we also have a responsibility. And that sometimes comes out of common sense or things we've learned elsewhere because the organisation is our organisation. And it's as, as much our responsibility to make sure we take sensible steps to protect the organisation. Absolutely. And talking about taking those steps to protect the organisation, the people within it, the customers, before we started recording, we were discussing GDPR. Um, And on that front, to what extent do you think insurance businesses have taken the necessary steps to get to May 2018 um, with the best possible chance of being compliant to the new regulation? I think there's a a mix. Um, the, the big difference between GDPR and data protection in 1997 is that we are having so much debate and discussion. There are roundtables, there are conferences, there are meetings, there are all sorts of sessions where we're having the opportunity to discuss GDPR and the impact it might have. And it's a little bit scary when you see statistics published about uh, companies. Um, recently, a statistic was published that suggested that 40% of insurance brokers don't know what GDPR is. Now, I don't know the context of that. I don't know when it was conducted. We don't know how many brokers took part in that. So we've got to remember there's a context behind that to consider. But that still means there are some people out there that don't know enough about GDPR. Bigger organisations, I think, are well prepared. And the sensible organisations 
for example, will have been prepared for years, not just waiting for GDPR, but will have considered privacy sensibly, will have put measures in place to understand what they do with data, why they process data, and where that data is kept, ensuring it's secure. All those kind of measures come out of Data Protection Act. They already exist. So common sense approaches to that are the kind of thing that many organisations have done. And I think we need to do more of what we're doing. I think it's about making sure that everybody's aware uh, of, of what data protection is all about, what GDPR will mean mm. to their organisations on the 25th of May next year, um, and what steps they need to take. And they aren't necessarily complicated. There's a danger that GDPR is seen as the, as, as the millennium bug, mm. and that we all rush around and panic because there's going to be huge fines if we get it wrong. Yes, there will be big fines. Um, and because we've got to introduce processes which are complex, they don't have to be complex. In many cases, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be doing the same on the 26th of May as we were on the 24th of May from an operational perspective. But there are plans to be made um, and, and uh, th- those don't have to be too complicated. When we, when we first met, I think a couple of months ago, it was in a roundtable discussion around GDPR. And if I remember correctly, I think you, you mentioned that there's, um, there's been a, a relative amount of fear-mongering around GDPR. But within that discussion, it seemed that there was um, an increasing level of optimism around the opportunity for businesses, but also for customers as well. What would be your stance on that? Is GDPR actually a fantastic opportunity, which is being miscommunicated as a threat or as a big challenge? I think I think we're right uh, to prepare uh, uh, properly to avoid the consequences of, of, of making mistakes. But um, I, I think the, the, the big thing that comes out of this is the opportunity of the consumer. It's important to remember what GDPR was all about. Uh, this was about in, in, in giving the consumer control over their data and helping to introduce competitiveness for online trading. That was the point of this. And we... we kind of think now well if you look at data portability for example it's an opportunity for the consumer to take more control of their data um, yes we've heard, heard about the scaremongering the right to be forgotten that isn't an absolute right there are you know there are many circumstances when we would want and need to keep data um, but quite rightly if there was no need for that data why would we keep it we need to get rid of it but when it comes to data portability we think about uh, our online trading habits and buying things um, and we spend lots of time doing validation about an individual's identity for example but once that's done we should be able to pass that around uh, so that we don't repeat the same kind of uh, activity which is costly mm. so there are opportunities there and that data portability will be an opportunity i think for the consumer uh, as I say, to take control of the data and actually who has access to it as well. And I think that's, the, that, that's one of the key elements of the, of the legislation. Um, it, it also drives behaviours a little bit as well in the sense that we start to ask questions about why we do things. We don't just process data. We say, why are we doing this? Um, and, and almost begin to justify it in our own minds. So we don't do things that we don't need to do. We don't keep data that we don't need to keep. Um, and I think it's those kind of behaviours that, that, that are opportunities that are coming out of GDPR. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to another episode of Who's Afraid of the Big Idea? 
If you enjoyed today's show, if you think friends, colleagues or family might like it, please feel to share and tell them about it and spread the word. Please also comment, rate us on iTunes so others can discover it. Feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at OneConnected, that's the number one, with any recommendations for future guests or maybe you even have a story to tell yourself. Finally, the podcast isn't sponsored. We do it because we love it, we love to learn and we love to share what we learn. But we do support a fantastic charity in North London, the Heart of Oak Foundation, who support the Oak Lodge School for Young People with Disabilities. So check them out, find out more at heartofoak.org. Thanks a lot. Oh, 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 oh,